the reason I've done what I've done, the reason I've written this book is it's really a consumer focused book. It's essentially retirement planning 101. You know, the first five or six chapters is just the basics of retirement planning. But then it gets into why you need more than just investments, why you need more than just your 401k, why you why you need some guarantees and actuarial science to pool risk, to shift those risks out of your portfolio to somebody else, the insurance company, so that you can spend and enjoy that which you've spent an entire lifetime accumulating. Tom, welcome to the Better Wealth Show. Caleb, thanks for having me. Great to be with you. I, you. So I have to first of all say I'm very impressed with your social media game. It's rare for PhDs in retirement income that speak around the country, been in this space for over 20 years, to be so relevant and speak so cleanly on Instagram. I'm not sure if you're on TikTok, but for the for my audience that does check out Instagram and TikTok and all those other things, they should definitely check you out. And I have to just also congratulate you because I am almost finished with your brand new book, Permission to Spend, wonderful name. You lay out the problems in retirement and you also talk about, I would say, you lay out frameworks and really talk about life insurance in a very powerful way that unpacks, hey, listen, like life insurance could be an amazing asset to help you get more in, in retirement. And I'm hoping to unpack all of that and more. So with that, welcome to the show. And um, I'm sure I botched your bio. So please fill us in on any other relevant details. If we were like in an elevator together, you were going up to the top floor, like what, who are you? Why did you get a PhD in retirement income? And why did you write a book about retirement and life insurance? Yeah, thanks. Jeff. That's a great intro. I, I really appreciate that. I People ask me that all the time, the PhD thing. Why did you get that? I can tell you, I never in my career ever thought of myself as an academic. I still don't. But what it came from was, you know, I started in the, in this industry for about four years as a financial advisor before actually being, you know, I call sucked into the home office of one of the big major mutuals out there as a life insurance expert. You know, my role was to work with advisors through the majority of my career as an expert on our products, how to compete with the competition. And I got very deep in the weeds because I'm working with sophisticated investment advisors on, on, on how this all works. And trying to convince them that, hey, this stuff makes a lot of sense and even inside of an investment portfolio, and here's why. And it's tough. You know, as you know, the whole life space, it's tough. It's an opaque fee structure. You don't actually see where all the charges are going inside the contract. We know what the expenses, what the mortality is. And because of that, you get a lot of talking heads saying whole life is bad. And, and it was always an uphill battle that way. So for whatever reason, I just kept asking a lot of questions and just kept doing a lot of studying and kept adding credentials after my name. So it looked like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> And after a while, I did start to know what I was talking about to the point where several years ago, maybe you know, about three years ago, I started to make the move mentally toward I need to get out of this home office world and go out and share the story with folks. Because after all my research and all that I had been through, I realized this is really good stuff. This is probably, I, in fact, I named my consulting company Best Kept Secret Consulting because I'm not the best kept secret. I think this is the best kept secret in, in financial planning for all the right reasons. So that's where we are today. The book, you know, the retirement income, you know, PhD that it was all just, you know, the culmination of me studying and asking question after question and ending up there, you know, with, with the book and a message to share. Yeah. And you mentioned this in the book a couple of times, like you, that aca academics and there's people that are coming around to this concept of like, okay, life insurance could be the best kept secret in retirement. Why is that such a controversial statement? And why is there so much like opinions and hate and like even me saying that it's like you could very much i can even think of the comments of people like oh you know scam or like just trying to 
get a commission. It's like, why is there so much hate for life insurance? And why isn't a lot of people understanding the paradigm of life insurance in portfolio and like helping you create more cash flow? Like I've always said, if we called retirement future cash flow planning, people may think about it and plan differently. But I think we just use retirement and we don't actually understand like what that actually means. And I think your book does a really good job laying out like logically, let's go back to the basics. Let's look at the 4% rule. Let's look at dollar cost averaging. Let's look at what you're currently doing. And then let's see if there can be ways to improve that. I think that's a very logical way to approach that. But going back to well, like, why is there so much misinformation and opinions around, around this? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> There's a lot of different angles that I could answer that with. I think the key word I could focus in on is your opinion, the word opinion. There has not been a lot of academic study of whole life insurance within a retirement framework. I think Wade Fow is the only person that I know of that has really done it really well and empirically in terms of how it works out with Monte Carlo simulations and all of the above. And even then it was his own assumptions, this manufactured product he made of his own. It still wasn't historical data sets or anything like that. So there's a little bit of a trust. There's always been a little bit of a trust me in whole life insurance. And the truth is, let's call a spade a spade. I mean, it, it is a high commission upfront product. There's then a renewal stream of commissions. And that, especially in today's world, seems at odds with what's good for a client. If it's a high commission up front, then it must be at odds with a client, right? The truth is, though, if you do the math on like assets under management versus life insurance commission, you'll actually pay a lot more in fees over the course of an investment for, to, to an, a managed account than you would pay for a life insurance commission. But even all that aside, there hasn't been a lot of academic study of it is I think the, the biggest problem. And you get a lot of people with opinions out there saying this is good, this is bad. A lot of times it's based on what they're pushing or what they're promoting. I always joke around, I think a lot of it comes from where you were born in the business. If you were born in an investment house and none of those people in that investment house ever sold life insurance, you're gonna learn how to sell investments. If yeah. you were born at one of the big mutuals and all they're doing is selling life insurance, guess what? Your mentor is gonna be a life insurance expert and you're gonna be selling life insurance. So it's very much like Eastern medicine versus Western medicine. You know, depending on where you were raised is going to be your how you view the world. And neither one is right or wrong. There's elements of both that should work together. But I think the biggest piece of all is when you look at like, you know, how this integrates and what the, my whole purpose of the book was to say, you know, investments will beat life insurance over time. They should like if a well-managed portfolio should. But the problem is, and this is why the 4% rule exists, is because you're going to be at some point you become your own insurance company. Right. You're yeah. you if you're all you have is investments is you're going to have to manage the risk of long term care. And what if you need a big chunk of cash or weathering a market downturn, all these things, you become your own insurance company. And that's wrong. Like That's the purpose of insurance is to shift risk and put some guarantees in place. So so you can spend and enjoy that which you spent a lifetime accumulating. And that's what the book's about. Is this would you agree with the statement that, you know, the market is a better way to grow assets, but it's not necessarily superior for distributing or taking out money. And when you add other insurance products, it helps mitigate the risk, i.e. creating a better distribution outcome and result. Absolutely. I think this, I think the silliest conversation that people, a lot of clients will force advisors into is, do I do the insurance policy or do I do an investment? And the answer is yes, you do both. Your book, the end assets, it's, it's not either or, which is what most people want to get into. And it's just how the human brain is wired. It's like, what's best? It's really and it's the strategy. And even and if you're younger, you know, 20, 30, however you define it, 20, 30s, 40s, you know, that age keeps getting older, but however you define young, 
it's okay to have most of your money in investments and real estate and crypto and all the stuff that can generate real wealth long term. But no matter who you are, there will be a march toward more conservative and taking risk off the table as you get older and older or closer to your goals. So you have to own some of that stuff. And what is that? What is that going to look like? Right. So then it becomes a comparison of whole life or even some of the other flavors of permanent life insurance versus your safe stuff. And I think when you start getting into that discussion, tell me about your safe stuff, whole life insurance in particular, but even some of the other, you know, universal lives, like that's the best safe stuff money can buy right now. I call it the best boring money can buy. Yeah. And I appreciate this message because there's a movement right now going on where a lot of people, especially on TikTok, are talking about life insurance and quoting all the benefits, tax-free, off-the-radar screen. The problem is they're using illustrations, and, and especially in like Index Universal Life illustrations, using arbitrage and showing insane tax-free cash flow. And they're saying all the right things, but my biggest problem is they're, you, they're pretty much selling life insurance as a one-size-fits-all, which I think makes everybody look bad. And then they also are showing illustrations that I firmly believe are, there's no shot that it's going to happen. And so they're in the long run, they're going to make a lot of people look bad, but they're making like life insurance be like the you know, one-stool deal. The reason I love your you know, philosophy is you're saying you're looking at it from number one, a whole life standpoint. So there's less levers. And number two, you're looking at it as like a part of the portfolio. And I just think there's a lot more stability. It might be less, you know, sexy, but you're actually talking about something that I actually think is going to happen and translate into value. I would love to get your thoughts on the people that are over aggressive and put all your money into life insurance and get tax-free income. And like the pros and cons and, and as a PhD and in a person that's been in the space for a little while, is there any beware in those type of teachings and aggressive marketing? Oh, there's tons of beware. Look, I, you hear, I've heard it called the rich man's Roth. Basically, you can put money in after tax and there's no real limitations on how much as long as the insurance company will give it to you. And then the money grows forever, income tax free if you do it right. I think when the abuses come is when they overlook some of the pitfalls. And frankly, I think some of that, sometimes it's not even overlooking them. It's misunderstanding. I think a lot of advisors don't even really understand the risk that is inherent in these contracts because they'll throw out terms like zero is your hero or upside potential with downside protection. When in reality, that downside, yes, there is a downside protection, but it's only one year at a time. It's not the lifetime of the contract. And the upside potential is completely not guaranteed at all. If you read the fine print, a lot of carriers can drop that down to as low as 3% and that will float over time. But oftentimes, when you think about the projections that are being run, it's essentially just a spreadsheet. If you're borrowing money, taking policy loans at four, and you're illustrating six, well, who in the world wouldn't borrow money at four to go earn six, right? If that deal existed that easily, trust me, the Goldman Sachs of the world would have been selling it to you know everybody else on the planet long ago. There's a reason that they're not. It's because there is risk. It's because inherently, you know, the markets do go up and down. And in an IUL, we've had the rosiest decade maybe ever for IUL sales because there's been just growth every single year with not a lot of volatility, therefore not a lot of zeros. But guess what? Last year, everyone's logging a zero in their IUL. Suddenly, some of those models are going to start to fall apart if people have been very aggressive. So there's nothing wrong with it. All of this can work. But I will tell you, I, I've been doing this 20 years. I've met thousands of advisors as essentially their life insurance advisor. And I've talked to some of the people that have been in the business for decades. And I said, tell me how many clients that you have or that you've seen 
actually call up the insurance company at age 65 and turn on an income stream that they spend down over the next 20 or 30 years. I have yet to find one client in the entire industry that has done that systematically year over year. So yeah, it's, you're never going to sell this stuff. You're never going to get tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of premiums out of clients unless you show them how it comes out. But in reality, what people do is, you know, they grab a chunk of money every few years to take the kids on vacation or buy the new car or fix the roof or whatever. That's how it's really used. And I think that's how I position it in my book is it's the backstop. It's the also asset. It's the it's the money that you tap into in 2022 when everything else goes down. It's That's where it fits. And I've never heard otherwise in reality. Yep. Yep. I love that. So I'm a big framework guy. I love like seeing like how things work. What's the structure? What's the foundation? So let's lay out the retirement framework without life insurance, without permission to spend, like just the basic retirement framework. And then let's talk about where, when life insurance is set up and used properly, can enhance that outcome and result. And I think that there's not a lot of people articulating this well. And I think you're one of the best that can very much articulate, you know, A versus B in, in a way that people can be like, oh, I understand why some people would call this a super bond or why I would want a portion of my money here for that outcome. Yeah. So I think a lot of my study actually, you know, when I finished my PhD, it was actually with Wade Fow at, uh, through the American College on retirement income planning. My dissertation was whole life as a fixed income alternative in retirement. So to answer your question, I think, you know, there's two factors that every retiree is going to be faced with, you know, two very big factors, and it's risk and taxes. Risk and tax. Basically, you know, you can have guaranteed returns at the bank, but it's going to be so small that it's not going to have any impact on your future. In fact, it will take over. So we all have to have risk. So where whole life insurance fits from a risk standpoint is it's a better bond. And if you think about it, what you're getting with whole life insurance and why I focus so much on whole life insurance and why I think it's the best permanent in the business is because it's actually a better bond. When you think about these big insurance companies, how they invest, they're investing in general investment accounts that are largely long-term corporate bonds. They're taking new money today and tying it up for 20 years and the highest yields they can get with long-term corporate bonds. And they've got such cash flow and uh, existing investments that they don't need liquidity. They have plenty of money coming in the door you know, today to meet all their claims and obligations. So essentially, it's like a big bond ladder, just kind of rolls year to year. And I'm simplifying. They've got other investments and subsidiaries and you know equity issuers and annuity subsidiaries, et cetera, et cetera. That they call those other businesses that contribute. But it's essentially a big bond ladder. However, through the life insurance contracts, so when, you, when they say they're paying a dividend interest rate of a certain amount, what they're telling you is that's essentially the cash flow of their big investment portfolio. It's like an income fund. But through the life insurance contract, they've guaranteed away any potential for loss. Not year to year like IUL. They're actually guaranteeing that cash values must rise every year. The only question is how much do they enhance it with the dividend that they've most of them have been paying since Civil War times. Like it's not really a question of if it's coming. It's a question of at what rate. And that's why you can get a better bond. Now, up front, you pay a lot for that. There's There are definitely a lot of expenses baked into the early years. You're paying for actuaries and underwriters and legal teams and commissions and all the stuff that goes into issuing this. But if you really look at your year-over-year growth on an existing life insurance policy or existing whole life, by about the year 10, you're probably growing at about 80 to 90% of that stated dividend interest rate. So the expenses are really just the mortality charges inside. But every year, what's the value of today having you know every single year, 5 6% every single year predictable? Maybe a little higher, maybe a little bit lower, but always going up. So <clears throat> long-winded answer to your question, I think from a risk standpoint, you can get better risk-adjusted returns if you have a mature whole life insurance policy in your portfolio. 
not on your stocks, but on your safe stuff, on your bonds. Because again, everyone was caught off guard last year when they saw bonds lose huge percentages that they were absolutely not uncomfortable with at, at the same time equities were. Bonds are no longer the diversifier that they once were over the last several decades. So I think from a risk standpoint, that's where it fits. And then from a tax standpoint, it's almost, it's obvious. If you can have those returns over time, but not have to pay the IRS on it, then that's a strategic way where that death benefit, which is going to be, you know, three, four, 10 times what you have in your cash value, that springing value for your beneficiaries that pays out totally income tax-free, that's going to be better than what most people's main asset is their qualified plan, which is going to get taxed at the highest marginal rates federally at the state level, even at the local level in some cases. And then some states even have inheritance taxes on top of that. So life insurance, the tax efficiency, I think the more conservative you are or the wealthier you are, the more that factors in as well. For people that don't have life insurance and they just have their money in the market, based on your research, what can they what can they take out? What's like safe withdrawal rate? I've seen things like the safe withdrawal rates at 2.3%. I don't know if that's just a marketing term for insurance. I've seen people say that you could take out 5% a year. I thought you did a very good job articulating that philosophy in your book. But where if someone is just has their money in a portfolio and they don't have life insurance, what is the optimal strategy to withdraw? There isn't one. So this is the issue that I came up come up with. This is what bothered me the whole time. You want to know what the safe withdrawal rate is? It's between 2% and 10%. And someone will say 10% safe. Well, here's there's a lot of factors that go into that. If you're wealthy, if you retire worth $10 million and you're living on relatively modest sums of money, but you want that first five years of your retirement to be amazing, cool. Spend 10% of your portfolio. Go just travel around the world because you know at the end of that, you're not going to need as much. The truth is David Blanchett, if you want to study anybody academically, David Blanchett is probably the best author that I've seen on safe or on, on, on spending patterns in retirement. Originally, it was the retirement smile. I think that's a, at least a decade year old, decade old now. But he found, you know, with, with actual data sets, I think that it's escaping me right now. But with actual data, they found that, you know, yes, people of lesser means, you know, the retirees, that Social Security is a big deal for them. Those folks need inflation-adjusted income, where it's in that, that inflationary environments like today is a very big deal for those folks because most of their expenses are non-discretionary. It's food, it's housing, it's transportation, it's the stuff you have to do no matter what. However, on the higher end, you know, folks that are retiring with six-figure incomes and have seven or eight-figure eight net worths, these are the folks that can just that can seriously cut back. You know, a lot of their expend, expenditures are traveling the world, going out to fancy restaurants the golf course, the seven series BMW, whatever it is, you know, these are all things that can be scaled back. So if something horrible happens, you know, a market crash or a pandemic, you know, we can take a year off, we can pull back. People where most of their expenses are discretionary, they can't do that. So the reason there's no real answer to that is because it's all about spending patterns. It's who are you? Are you willing to be adaptable? Are you willing to take a year off? If the great depression happens again at the same time as a health scare, are you able to do that? And that's a big part of it. But in a nutshell, the original study, you know, the William Benjamin's 4% rule, you know, that, believe it or not, that was 30 years ago in 1994 when that came out. 30 years ago. It's crazy. But that was all based on just you starting retirement and then inflating your income every year by actual inflation such that you had spent your last dollar on the last day of a 30-year retirement. All right. So then you got variables of how long you're going to live and are there inheritances? And it's a very complicated question. But I think the, it, to boil it all down, it's how adaptable can you be? 
you know, if you're, if you need that bucket of money to last as long as you do, and you have to guarantee a legacy, you have to guarantee funds for long-term care, you have to guarantee you're okay if the market crashes by 50%, if you have to guarantee yourself with your own money, all that, then yeah, 2% is probably your safe withdrawal rate. But if you can guarantee away those risks through life insurance, or if you are wealthier and can be adaptable and say, yeah, I'll take 20% off my income next year if I have to, like we all did in the pandemic, we, didn't, we couldn't go anywhere, right? We all proved we could. We didn't like it, but we proved that we could. You know, if you can be adaptable, then I think you can take a lot more up front because over time, at least for the mass affluent and above crowd, real spending actually declines over time in retirement. You know, 90 year olds don't live like 60 year olds. It's just, it's, it's not just anecdotal. It's in the data. So you, and you talked in the book about, you know, 4% rule monies in the portfolio. And then obviously if you have a buffer asset like life insurance, it gives you the ability that's not correlated to the market that if, and when the market drops, you can number one, choose to spend less. And number two, you mm -hmm. could tap into another asset, letting your other portfolio recover. So that is like a, that's a way where life insurance, where you can't just look at the rate of return, but there's so many other fuzzy and benefits to life insurance. Then you also talked about an annuity and like the pensionizing your income. And you've said that studies show that people that get income each month are happier, but you also said that people will be afraid to annuitize their money. And I've seen this. It's like people are like very, I don't know if it's like commitment. It's like you're marrying to this system of like you're taking a chunk of money and creating income around it. But you've talked about how life insurance can create potential there or create maybe like less commitment there because if no matter what happens with the annuity, you'll have a permanent death benefit that will be able to, you know, continue to cover your asset. Is there any anything else that you want to articulate as it relates to like life insurance is not just the its growth and it's tax free, but it like almost enhances both of those strategies, giving someone options because who knows if you're not retiring today, you probably shouldn't commit to any strategy. You should almost create just more options for the future. Yeah, it's all about options and flexibility. You know, if you have, if you think about the reasons people don't annuitize, annuitizing is a great deal. So we just talked about the 4% rule or 2% rule, whatever that is. If you show up to an insurance company today at a, as a, say a 65 year old male with a million bucks, they'll give you like $70,000 per year off that. It's like a 7% safe forever for the rest of your life. Now that's not inflation protected, which is what the, those rules are based on, but that's a, double the lifestyle in those yep. early years of your retirement when you probably want them the most. The reason people don't do it though is because if you just take a pure straight life annuity, if you do that, like I just described, give, your, give that company a million bucks and you die a year later, your family gets nothing, right? Additionally, once you tie that money up, it's illiquid. Technically, there's some provisions to get some money back, but it's basically gone. So you can't mm -hmm. use that money for an extra hundred grand to pay for long-term care or just fill in the blank, just some financial calamity. So that's where life insurance is such a great fit. If I can, with a death benefit, a million dollar policy guarantee, a guarantee that my kids are going to get that legacy I wanted for them, then I don't need to worry about there being money left over. If that policy has a cash value or a long-term care rider where I can actually access those values while I'm alive, I don't need to segregate money for that either. I'm not giving myself permission to annuitize. Certainly not everything. No one's going to annuitize all their money. But I, you know, I think about retirement, just planning taxes, I'm probably going to annuitize 100% of my qualified plans on the day I retire. And then all my tax-free non-qualified, you know, the Roth IRA, the life insurance piece, that's going to be my investment component that I can, you know, just sell whenever I need to, and it won't generate taxable income. So 
I can only do that though, because I know that my obligations perceived or otherwise, my perceived obligations to my family are met. Otherwise, you know, who could responsibly do that? I love that. Do you have any recommendation how much life insurance you should have to your assets based on your age? Do you get into that or is it one of those where that's a whole nother can of worms? So it's a great question. I remember when I first started in the business, my first, you know, general agent or firm president was saying, you know, I tell all our clients they should put five to 10% of their income into permanent life insurance. And that's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's a good recommendation. But I always wondered why, like, why that number? Why not 7%? Why not 25? I I don't know. Where did you come up with it? It almost sounded just like a good way to to convince people to do it. So what I got to with a lot of the research, it came from the book too, is I actually hired a data scientist to tell me what is the marginal impact of having a year of buffer assets? Like basically a, a money somewhere else outside of your retirement portfolio. So if, if you're listening to this and you're, you, you haven't done, been through this, the concept of a volatility buffer is basically says you, it's okay to take money out of a volatile portfolio that's going to go up and down each year. You can start out with 4 or 5%, whatever that is. But to the extent that you can take a year off following the down years, you can let your portfolio recover. You know, the biggest problem is that if your portfolio loses 20%, and then you take income, now you just lost 25 or 30% because you took income off of that. So if you can instead take money from somewhere else in those years following a down market, you can let that portfolio recover, which has always happened in history and always should happen, assuming economic theory continues. So the research basically said that you know for every year that you could take off, you can take about 10% more income off of that investment portfolio. That was the takeaway. So for me, since the market has never really lost value, I think the Great Depression technically was four years in a row, but generally speaking, the market hasn't lost value in consecutive years more than two or three times in a row, I think more than three times in the last hundred years. If you can have three years that you could take off, you could feel relatively comfortable that you have enough buffer assets to weather any storm. So for me, if you're taking a 5% withdrawal rate, if you've got a million bucks and you're taking 5% of it per year, then you know two or three times that amount or 10 to 15% of your portfolio, for me, feels like a good number to have in whole life cash value at retirement. So for me, it's more of a backward math calculation. It's not so much what you should have at any given age. It's at retirement. I would love to see you have 10 to 20% of your portfolio net worth and whole life cash value because that's going to be safe, conservative, accessible anytime, no 59 and a half rules or RMDs. So you can then you know shoot for the stars with everything else. If you're banking off of the, you know, asset market being the way that you grow your assets and you had like a 50-50, 50% life insurance, 50% market, there do- does come a point where that you have too much in life insurance because it's not growing at the rate that the market. Is there a certain percentage based on your research that you're like, hey, if you're banking on the typical retirement strategy, you can actually have too much life insurance in this equation. And do you, did you guys do that research? I wouldn't say I've done the research, but just, you know, my, my common sense basically says if the market on average loses value once out of four years, and therefore the market grows three out of four years, and we're always trying to sell what's high, then I would want one quarter of my portfolio to be cash value in that example, and three quarters to be in equities, because that way I'm always selling something high on average, right? So three out of those four years, it's going to be up. I will sell my equities high. In the year like last year, when equities go down, I will sell my whole life cash value. So very crude, but if you, I think for most people, that's easy to think of it that way. 
I think at the 20 to 25% range, that's where it starts to get probably a little bit too much. Unless you're just a really conservative person. Some people just do not like risk. They lose sleep. They make bad decisions. And there's always that human element too, where, you know, with life insurance, you don't have, or whole life insurance, you don't have that. It is guaranteed to rise. It probably won't rise as well as equities on average over time. But, you know, if you're not throwing up every few years, then (laughs) I think you're probably going to be better off that way. Is there any other predictions as relates to politics, taxes, volatility that you see going forward? And then my second part question, I'm sorry for all my like run on questions, is like, we got a huge problem on our hands, massive problem when you look at retirement. What's the likelihood of it just not working for so many people and then the government stepping in? and doing their thing and bailing out a bunch of people. Like it almost feels like the government will do something like that. And how would that affect the people that don't necessarily want the government to step in and bail them out? But how does that, how would that affect us? So I know I asked you a lot of questions and it's really your prediction of what to expect in the future, looking at where majority of Americans are at retirement. That's a really good question. Income inequality is a big deal in this country. I think that's, there's really two questions you asked that I heard. So first of all, on the life insurance side, I'll say who knows what politics are going to be or anything like that or what the future holds. But a big part of the talk that I give, actually my keynote talk when I'm speaking to firms, it's, it talks about how whole life insurance is, we're probably in the best environment for whole life insurance in about 80 years. And that's not just hyperbole, that's actually math. The last time rates were this low, and yes, they came up last year, but they're still historically low, was in the 1940s, about 80 years ago. When what happened since then around World War II era is, is rates began to rise. And you saw, if you look at historical you know, publications, dividend interest rates for participating whole life insurance policies took them a few years, but these companies started to average in these higher and higher rates and you saw dividend interest rates rise. Everybody out there right now has only been in an environment where we've seen interest rates drop. Think about it. The first bond index, you know, I think the Lehman Brothers was 1974. Barclays was 1976. The 401k, I think, was invented in 1978. Nobody owned bonds prior to this period of time, and the spike in interest rates was 1981. So all we've seen is rates fall since then, and we've seen declining dividend interest rates. And that's frankly where a lot of the non-educated pundits will say, whole life insurance is bad. Look at the dividend rates are falling every year. But relatively speaking, relative to its alternatives, I've actually done research that shows this is probably the best time ever in modern history to be buying whole life insurance, because in a flat or rising interest rate environment, whole life insurance is set up to do extremely well. And what I think you'll start to see is you can't predict this or guarantee this, of course, but I think now insurance companies are investing in rates that are so much higher than they were just a year and a half ago that you're going to start to see that flow through to the dividends and they're going to get very competitive with each other, you know, pushing that through. So that's one prediction. The second one is I'm very keen on the topic of universal basic income. I think where a lot of that comes from is this whole thought that artificial intelligence is going to displace jobs and you know, that, that narrative has come about all throughout history. The Industrial Revolution, they said the exact same thing. Who knows how it plays out? But income inequality is getting wider, just period, end of story. You know, you look at Social Security, no, everyone's still going to get a Social Security check. But there is a question to what level. You know, they, they could actually decrease benefits or just like they're doing with RMDs where they're extending the age out. You might need to wait till 75 to get Social Security at some point. So there, there's those kind of pressures on folks. And yeah, if society at large has not saved enough for retirement, you know, it's not good for society to have a bunch of 70-year-olds living homeless. You know, the politicians yeah. will step in. They'll have to do something. 
So I don't know what that looks like. You know, I think you know, people look at universal basic income and it seems un-American or socialist or whatever. But the reality is just look at the S&P 500. It's like five companies, I think, are more than half the value or something like that. It's because these big tech companies taken over the world. The thought is that they'll have to share. And who knows how that plays out? You know, you know yeah. politics. But, yeah, totally. But I'm, totally. I'm, I'm fascinated by that thought process. Yeah. Tom, is there anything else that you want to say before we wrap this up? Again, phenomenal job on the book. Appreciate the research and appreciate your message. Is there anything else that yeah, you want to say as it relates to this topic, life insurance, what you're up to in the world? Yeah, I, I appreciate you having me on. You know, I, the reason I made this leap from corporate America to getting out and just speaking to folks, individuals and advisors alike, is I don't think there's a lot being said for all the right reasons. I think a lot of the big companies that are afraid to market whole life insurance for all of the great tax advantages and benefits that it has outside of just the death benefit, because, you know, for regulatory reasons, they don't want it to be positioned as a bank or some kind of alternative to that, or it's life insurance first and foremost, but it does have all these amazing advantages. And I think that there's not a lot of great resources out there to give a client. So the reason I've done what I've done, the reason I've written this book is it's really a consumer focused book. It's essentially retirement planning 101. You know, the first five or six chapters is just the basics of retirement planning. But then it gets into why you need more than just investments, why you need more than just your 401k, why you why you need some guarantees and actuarial science to pool risk, to shift those risks out of your portfolio to somebody else, the insurance company, so that you can spend and enjoy that which you've spent an entire lifetime accumulating. So it's meant to not it's meant to be a great educational piece for younger advisors. But I think but it really I think my hope is that advisors can leverage it with their clients, something to give to their clients to say, hey, here's a third party guy who's been through this, but he has no interest in selling you anything. I wrote a book about talking about why this makes so much sense, uh, something that they can lean on. Because there's just so so little of that in our industry, true objective third party material. And it's yeah. a quick read. I think someone told me that they read it on the on a four hour flight last week. So yeah, I'm listening to it while marking it up on Audible, and it's, you know, I listen to things a little faster, and it's, I'll have it done by the end of the day. So it's a great read. We both love Dr. Wade Fowle, but his book, Safety First Retirement, is not a, it's very intimidating to give out. And I think your book does a phenomenal job, has pictures. You, again, you lay out the fundamentals, and then you start building on that. And I really do appreciate that. How can my audience get your book? I know that there's advisors that will probably want to buy this in bulk. And then there's some consumers that are like, hey, I have life insurance and they might be having different strategies. Like what I like to say is like, regardless of your future retirement strategy, I want people to understand that life insurance is an and asset and gives you options. And your message has never been more relevant in that conversation. And so how can people get your book and get connected with you? Yeah. So you can find me at TomWallTalks.com. That's got my bio and everything about me, links to social. It'll, it'll, you can even find my book there. It's on Amazon and all the formats, Audible, you know, paperback, hardcover, coming shortly. Or there's also PermissionToSpend.com, which isn't quite built out as of the time of this recording, but maybe by the time this goes live, there'll be some more resources on there as well with the ability to buy it in bulk if you do happen to be an advisor that wants to hand that out. Amazing. And we'll include all of the proper links and how you can best get connected with Tom down below. Again, thank you. Thank you so much for watching. And Tom, I look forward to future conversations. And again, thank you. And so grateful that we got connected. Love your message and grateful to be connected with you, man. Likewise. Thanks, Caleb. Good to be with you.
Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.